0: uh, Thank you all very much for having me. I'm really uh, very um, happy to be here this morning to to speak to you. Um, We've been working quite closely with the Teachers' Federation for a number of years now, and it's been fantastic to have uh, your ongoing support, I think, in a particular particularly tough policy time. So I've been asked this morning to speak a bit about children in detention and their access to education. I'll also just give you a bit of an overview of how we're responding to the current situation. Um, but I'm happy to leave a bit of time to, to, for questions to hear what you're interested in, in learning about. Um, so I'll make sure I don't, don't rabbit it on for too long or we'll just give you a brief overview. So according to the latest stats that we have, and it is a, a um, bit of a moving feast at the moment. The policy is changing quite rapidly. Um, so, as of end of April, there were over 800 children being held in closed detention facilities in Australia and on Christmas Island, um, and. What has been quite um, upsetting, I think, over the past few years, is that we've, despite the fact that we have been moving towards a more community-based model of processing for asylum seekers, which we're very warmly welcomed, we're still seeing very, very high numbers of children held in these closed facilities, and I think what's most worrying of all is that for the children on Christmas Island, of which there are about uh, 200, 240, um, they're now being held in detention for longer periods because anybody who arrived after the 19th of July 2013 is now liable to be processed offshore rather than in Australia. It's meant that everybody who's on Christmas Island is basically staying in detention on Christmas Island until there's room for them in an offshore processing centre. And what that has now meant is that many of those children have been in detention for eight months or more. Um, When the Human Rights Commission visited uh, Christmas Island recently to see how the children were doing there, it found some really incredibly disturbing... um, things were happening that children were biting themselves and others, they were banging their heads, they were incredibly depressed and uh, the commission said they were visibly distressed when they spoke to them. Uh, And what we hear from mental health experts is for an adult in detention the tipping point where their mental health starts to decline is usually about the three to four month mark. But for children, it's much quicker, it's two to four weeks is when they start to tip. So you can imagine having been held in that environment for eight months, what kind of a state those children's mental health would be in at the moment. On top of that, we have, as of last count, 190 children held on Nauru, including some unaccompanied children, so children who have arrived to seek asylum without a parent or guardian, either because they've been orphaned or they've been separated from their parents. In terms of their access to education services, it can be really variable depending on where they're detained. If they're on a mainland, on the Australian mainland in a detention centre in a suburb like Villawood or Broadmeadows in Melbourne, usually they can just go to the local school. Um, that's, of course, much more difficult in a place like Christmas Island where that sort of infrastructure doesn't exist. It's a, an environment where there is a, a very small local school and, of course, when you've got over 200 children suddenly being a- added to that that school population, uh, obviously, they're not going to be able to cope. So what we've seen in recent times is that children have been um, given education inside the detention centre itself, um, which, of course, uh, makes education part of the detention experience rather than something that's separate to it. And to the the Department of Immigration's credit, um, probably not a phrase you'll hear me say that often, um, but they have acknowledged that they aren't getting it right on Christmas Island and there was a fair uh, bit of money allocated in the budget to improve education services for children on Christmas Island. But I think the problem is that when you hold people in detention in these very remote environments um, where they're cut off from a lot of support services, it does make it much more difficult to get people even the basic things like healthcare um, and education. Say another example of that is no children um, are born on Christmas Island. Always are, the pregnant women are flown off Christmas Island down to birth because um, there, there aren't good enough services for for pregnant women and for uh, newborn children on Christmas Island. So it just makes it much more difficult to deliver those services in those kind of environments. And then, of course, when you're moving children to a place like Nauru, where uh, education services already aren't what we would consider to be on par with Australian standards, um, but more so than that, they're not services that have ever been set up to deal with children from a background other than Nauruan. I mean, if you go to an Australian school, we've already got, well... We do at the moment. We're not sure how that's going to quite work out with local schools, local decisions, but at the moment have a good system for providing ESL education. Um, But, of course, nothing like that has ever existed on Nauru because they're not a, a country with a strong history of of permanent migration where children were going to Nauruan schools that weren't from Nauruan backgrounds. So for one thing, the infrastructure is a lot poorer, but it also means that just the the basic knowledge, understanding of being able to teach children in those environments um, is is simply missing. I mean, you can imagine how many Tamil and Farsi interpreters there are living on Nauru at the moment, um, let alone someone who's actually qualified in teaching English to children from those sorts of language groups. So uh, while in some cases children do get um, a pretty decent education by being able to go to an Australian school in other environments, other detention centres, that's certainly not the case. So I think it's uh, under the Refugee Convention we do have an obligation to ensure that all children have access to primary education on the same basis as Australian nationals and I'd say that's certainly that we're not meeting that obligation at the moment in Australia. So just to give you a bit of an overview of how we're trying to respond to these kinds of issues and of course there are a lot of them, not just um, children in detention, although that's of course one of our main concerns. We're basically trying to uh, adopt as many different strategies, go into at, at these issues from as many different angles as possible to try and, and build towards change. As um, I'm sure many of you would um, agree, it is very, very difficult to change the mind of the immigration minister or the prime minister. They um, aren't kidding when they say they've got strong resolve to implement these policies. So it is very difficult for an organisation like us to to change their minds. But what we're trying to do is firstly build more of an evidence base of what the impacts of these policies are. We're consulting with communities, with asylum seekers themselves, with the service providers who work with them to find out exactly what the impact of these policies are. And I mean, it's pretty obvious. It's a lot of the time just common sense. Um, But the more evidence we have, the more case studies we can gather the stronger our argument becomes for why things need to change. We're also trying to research and develop policy alternatives so we're hoping during refugee week this year that we'll be able to release a bit of a, a brief on what some alternative policies could actually look like so that we are giving the government a realistic alternative to to what they are doing. <laughs> We're working with our members and supporters through different policy networks to try and in a a tighter uh, budget environment share what information and ideas and resources we have, uh, both to give us a bit of a clearer idea of what's actually going on in in a context where we have much less transparency from government, but also to see um, when We are all working with reduced resources, what we can all do to support each other, what expertise we can bring together to try and and make some change. Um, The more positive side of things, we're also um, working on education and awareness raising initiatives. I just mentioned Refugee Week which is coming up in June and um, again, it's fantastic to see the the Teachers Federation supporting that initiative, Uh, but there's much more information on our Refugee Week website, which is refugeeweek.org.au, including um, information of where you can get posters, um, a resource kit which includes um, a long list of resources that are useful in the classroom um, and that's really an opportunity for us not to just respond to the negative but to actually start talking about some of the positive stories, the, the achievements and the contributions that refugees have made to society and why we actually should be looking at our humanitarian program not as something um, that Australia should be ashamed of but something that we can be proud of and there is a lot to be proud of in spite of the negative policy environment we're currently in. We have also just finished up a pilot program that was funded by the Department of Social Services where we went into primary and high schools in Sydney and Melbourne. We did a double act with a person from a refugee background. So say I'd get up and speak a bit about who refugees are, where they come from, why they come to Australia, um, what Australia's policies are towards refugees, where we fit into the international picture. And then my co-presenter, who was a person from a refugee background, would get up and tell their story. We've just finished up that program now. It's been incredibly positive and the feedback that we've got from students has been, has been really quite incredible. We've, I was looking at the feedback surveys we gathered the other day and students were saying things like, I, I, I learned from this presentation that the refugees aren't just a faceless mass of people like the media often portrays them. They're real people with real stories. And so many of the students were saying that I learned I was so lucky Um, to live in a safe place like Australia, and I didn't realise how hard it was for refugees to get protection overseas. I think one of um, my highlights of being involved in that project was doing a a presentation uh, in a primary school in the electorate of Cook. Uh, Many of you may know who the honourable member for Cook is. Um, and the response from the children in that school was was quite incredible. You could see that they were really putting themselves in the shoes of my co-presenter, who who is an amazing young woman from Afghanistan who tells this incredible story about um, her father being an enemy of the Taliban, having to flee uh, in the middle of the night in an unmarked van and then being caught by the Taliban, being forced to walk through um, the mountains in the middle of the night with wild animals um, running around them. So. And there she was now in Australia studying law and incredibly articulate and talking about how wonderful Australia is. And you could really see the the children in that room relating to her. In fact, one of the the first questions that was asked um, when we went to question time, um, this young woman had talked about um, her favourite place in the world being her garden. And this was right at the beginning of her presentation. So 45 minutes later, the first question she got asked was, do you think your garden is still there? And I think what that showed was that the children had really tried to put themselves in that woman's shoes. The fact that she had enjoyed her garden really resonated with them. And even right at the end later, after they might have been getting a bit fidgety after sitting listening to us for an hour, they actually had taken that in. They'd remembered that. And it really uh, showed me that if we can do that with the children in Cook, if we can change their minds, surely we can do that anywhere. So um, I think that's a really positive program, which we're now hoping to continue on a fee service basis. And as well as that, we're also looking at international advocacy options. In a couple of weeks, um, our CEO... We'll be travelling to Geneva for the annual consultations between the UN High Commissioner for Refugees and NGOs from around the world, and we're also looking in cooperation with other people in our sector, um, how we can um, look at other UN human rights mechanisms to try and bring, bring a bit of international pressure to bear on on the Australian government and Uh, show I think the rest of the world just how shameful Australia's current refugee policies are. Um, So that's what we're doing. I think it is a negative environment but there is also a lot of positive stuff going on and as I said I think the response that we got yesterday to the funding cuts showed that we are a strong sector and there is a lot that we can do and when we rally together we really can have quite a powerful voice. Um, So that, that finishes it up for me. Thank you very much again for having me and I'm more than happy to take a few questions.